Now, Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So, when he heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed two days longer in the place where he was. Then after this, he said to the disciples, let us go to Judea again. The disciples said to him, Rabbi, the Jews were just now seeking to stone you, and you're going there again? Jesus answered, are there not twelve hours in the day? If anyone walks in the day, he does not stumble, because he sees the light of this world. But if anyone walks in the night, he stumbles, because the light is not in him. After saying these things, he said to them, Our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I go to awaken him. The disciples said to him, Lord, if he's fallen asleep, he will recover. Now, Jesus had spoken of his death, but they thought he was taking rest in sleep. Then Jesus told them plainly, Lazarus has died, and for your sake I'm glad that I was not there, so that you may believe, but let us go to him. So Thomas, called the twin, said to his fellow disciples, let us also go that we may die with him. Now, David always requests titles for the sermons. I don't know how many of you consult the titles, but just in case you haven't consulted the title uh, this evening, I gave this message a title I rather enjoyed, but I think I will need to explain to you in a few minutes. This sermon has the title, Jesus Kunk Tatar. Jesus Kunk Tatar. We've seen in our studies that the Gospel of John is divided into two sections, begins with a prologue, ends in chapter 21 with an epilogue, and then the narrative is divided into two, sometimes described by Bible scholars as chapters 1 to the end of chapter 12, the book of the signs in which Jesus does seven miracles, seven signs that identify Him as the Son of God, and the second half of John's gospel as the book of glory, in which Jesus manifests His glory, especially to His disciples and through His death and resurrection. And we've come now to a very critical point in the gospel narrative in chapters 11 and 12 that very much form a kind of bridge between the first half and the second half. They form the conclusion of the first half. Here we have the seventh miracle. Here we have the greatest miracle. So there's something climactic about John chapter 11. But it's also a bridge into the rest of the gospel because, in a sense, it, it brings to pass through the sovereign action of Jesus all the events that will take place in the remaining chapters. 
It's what happens in this chapter that explains the crowd and the excitement and the praise when Jesus entered into Jerusalem. The other gospel writers don't really explain why there was such an outburst of admiration for Jesus, this sense that He was the King coming to Jerusalem. But what He does in this chapter explains why that is the case, because He had just recently raised His friend Lazarus from the dead. And so, it's a bridge into the rest of the book. And in a sense, it's an explanation of what takes place in the rest of the book. And it's in this chapter there have been six previous occasions when John has told us people have plotted to kill Jesus. And it's in this chapter that the seventh, the final, the climactic, the complete plot is announced. And this is the plot, of course, that, humanly speaking, succeeds in killing Jesus. But what John is concerned to show us is that none of this is outside of Jesus' control. It's because of what Jesus did that this happened. It's because Jesus understood, as He hints to His disciples in this passage, is because Jesus understood that although up until this point His time had not yet come, now in chapters 11 and 12 it becomes clear that Jesus' time has come. And John records this in a very interesting way, very instructive way, actually. And there are really two things in these first 16 verses I want us to think about together. They're fairly obvious, actually. As the first thing that John does is he gives us this introduction to what is obviously a very special family in the life of Jesus, a very special family in the life of Jesus. Lazarus, about whom we read in verse 1, is the brother of these two sisters, Mary and Martha. Uh, he lives in the little village of Bethlehem, which is about two miles away, uh, the little village of, uh, of, uh, of what's it called? Uh, <laughs> uh, you know the village that he lives in. <laughs> it's actually now named after him uh, as the village of Lazarus. And so he lives in Bethany. And Jesus clearly visits this home frequently. Uh, when He's visiting Jerusalem, it looks as though this is where He gets bed and breakfast. And these three have become a very special family to the Lord Jesus. And it's interesting that John assumes that they're rather well known to his readers. John, I think, is probably the last gospel to be written. Uh, maybe some of his readers have read the other gospels. They know the story of Martha and Mary. They seem to have been known, certainly, among Jewish Christians in the early church, although for whatever reason, Lazarus does not seem to have been so well known. And they're known for their relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. They're well known, and it's very clear that they're well loved, not just by some of the readers but well-loved by the Lord Jesus Himself. 
And you notice there are three occasions in this chapter in which we are told about that love. First of all, in verse 3, we are told that when the sisters sent to Jesus because Lazarus was sick, they said, Lord, he whom you love is ill. And it's an amazing description. And again, later on in verse 5, we're told that Jesus actually loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. And then when he eventually comes to the tomb of Lazarus and, and tears begin to flow, the people round about say, look, at he, look how much he loved Lazarus. And this is very interesting language because uh, there is no other named person in John's gospel who is being described as being loved by Jesus. Yes, it's true that God so loved the world He gave His only Son, John 3.16. It's also true that in an anonymous way, the author of John's gospel describes himself as the disciple Jesus loved. But actually, these are the only three people in John's gospel who are described as being loved by Jesus. Now, does that mean that Jesus loved them more than He loved others? Actually, sometimes people, I think mistakenly, have assumed that's what John, the author of the gospel, is saying when he says, I'm the disciple Jesus loved. I doubt that that's true. I doubt it's true that Jesus loved John more than He loved Peter, or Matthew, or James. I think what John is really saying when he says that about himself, and what he's saying when he says this about this little family, is that here were people who were supremely conscious of this fact, that Jesus loved them. It was the one thing about their relationship to Jesus that made this relationship so special. They knew He had an unreserved love for them. Actually, John uses two different verbs, um, and those of you who are interested in Greek verbs and have read C.S. Lewis's book, The Four Loves, uh, might be inclined to think, well, he must mean different things, but I think it's possible that when John uses two different verbs, he's really just giving us a, a kind of variety. Uh, it's as though he's walking us around the love of Jesus and saying, I want you to see that, that, that love actually is a multidimensional phenomenon, isn't it? I mean, we say we love people, but we don't love people all in the same way, do we? Love doesn't mean the same thing every time we use it. Uh, David loves Dundee. I mean, the football team. But he doesn't love Dundee the same way he loves Annabelle. So, we use the same word, and uh, sometimes we need to kind of unpack those words. And so, twice in this context, very interestingly, in connection with Lazarus in particular, we're told that Jesus had the love of friendship, of brotherly love for Lazarus. And all of this is building up a very interesting picture. 
And it comes out in the, in the way in which these sisters speak to Jesus. And it's clear from one point of view that they, they knew Jesus intimately. How do I know that? Because Jesus was somewhere out in the boonies. Actually, He was where His ministry had begun, where He had been baptized by John. And He was out there because people had been plotting to kill Him. And yet, miles away, there was this little family, and they knew exactly where Jesus was. It's just fascinating, isn't it? Uh, Lazarus is ill. They sent to Jesus, but the interesting thing is they, they know where Jesus is. And the only conclusion you can draw from that is that somehow or another Jesus had communicated to them where He was going to be. Now, there's an interesting thing in John's gospel. It's a bit, in this sense, like a crime novel. It's only when you get more clues later on you realize what's being said earlier. Remember how later on Jesus says in the upper room to the other disciples, I'm not going to call you my servants any longer. From now on, you are going to be my… Do you know the word He uses? He uses the very same word that's used here about Lazarus. You're going to be my friends. The servant doesn't know what his master is doing, but the friends have that kind of intimacy. And so, you see, it's, it's as, I think John expects you to read his gospel more than once, so that later on when you pick up the clues and then you go back and say, that's what he's saying. He's saying something about the discipleship of this little family, that they knew him intimately because they were his friends, and John even uses the language of friend about Lazarus. And uh, they yield to him instinctively. Later on in the passage, beyond what we read, when Jesus meets both sisters, which He does independently, they both say exactly the same thing to Him, Lord, if You had been here. And they really do mean Lord. Uh, this, is, uh, this is not Elizabeth Bennet referring to Mr. Darcy. These are disciples who have some understanding of who Jesus is. And it's their instinct, even in their darkest hour when Lazarus has died, it's their instinct to come to Jesus and to, to call Him Lord. And they're very conscious that He is the one they need. Now, whatever friends they have in Bethany, how could I forget that name? Obviously not brought up in the Plymouth Brethren or I would never have forgotten that name. Uh, isn't it so interesting that all of their instinct is to say, Jesus? I mean, in a sense, John is saying to us, this is what real disciples look like. Uh, this is their instinct. They know much about the Master. It becomes very clear they don't know everything the Master is doing but their deepest instinct, especially in times of difficulty, is to turn to Him and call them Lord. So, this little description that John gives to us is a description of a very special family, but they are very special because 
what John is doing for us here without actually saying it, without putting a footnote, as it were, in the bottom and saying, dear reader, do you see what I'm doing here, what I'm saying here? As he's really describing what disciples are like, how they know they are loved by Jesus. And interestingly, again, later on in the upper room, that's exactly the thing that Jesus speaks to the disciples about. He says, those who, those who call me Lord, those who live in obedience to me, I will come to them, and I will show my love to them. I will manifest myself to them. So, first of all, John is introducing us to a special family. But you see, that's the more we appreciate that and the more we appreciate them, the more we realize the tension that John is creating in this narrative. And this is one of the best-known narratives in John's gospel, is that, you know, we've all got the same problem. You've got the problem. I've got the problem. Ho-hum. We know what happens. But you see, he's, he's creating tension, um, and it's evident in the way in which he, he actually he kind of puts together statements that, at least to our emotions, seem totally contradictory to each other. And so, the second thing John is doing here, besides introducing us to this special family, is giving Jesus' explanation for His surprising delay. Of course, this situation leads to a discussion, so <clears throat> let's just look at that for a moment. Uh, the disciples really don't know what's going on here. Jesus says, Lazarus is asleep, we're staying here. Um, and uh, then He says, a couple of days later, it's, t it's time to go. And they're saying, but you said He was asleep? Um, you know, I mean, they knew enough basic medicine to realize if the guy was sleeping, then there was a good chance he was getting better. And they've not taken on board the fact that Jesus is thinking about His death. And so, they have this discussion, you know, why are we engaging in this madness of going anywhere near Jerusalem? They've just been trying to kill you, and that's exactly what they'll do. And Jesus says to them, uh, there are twelve hours in the day. Now, you understand that's, uh, that's the speech of antiquity, that twelve hours of light, twelve hours of darkness. And Jesus is saying, as long as, as long as we're in the day until, until the, the hour of the end of the day comes, we, we, there are things for me to do, and the darkness has not yet fully descended. But he realizes the darkness is descending soon. He will say that very clearly in the twelfth chapter, that the darkness has now descended. But so long as the darkness has not descended, so long as the day has not yet come when I will be delivered over to the powers of darkness, now is the time for me to demonstrate the power of God, the grace of God, the wonder of God, and as he says very explicitly here, the glory of God. And at least half of us, I mean, we're Scottish after all, most of us, we are, we are glass half fool people. At our best, there is Thomas. You know there's a McThomas Bridge in the Highlands of Scotland. I don't know if it has anything to do with uh, this uh, Thomas, but Thomas, who's always a, a kind of glass-half-full person, he, he says, well, we might as well go and die with him. And off they go to 
Bethany. But that's the inner discussion of the disciples. Um, I want you to notice the tension that John has expressed in the way in which he describes this incident. Did you notice it as we read it? So, so first of all, the sisters say, Lazarus is ill. He's sick. And it's, it's not just Lazarus. It's Lazarus, whom you love, is ill. Then look at what, what John tells us in verse 6. So, you see this? So, as a consequence of this, as a logical implication of the news he had just heard, what did Jesus do? So, when he heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed two days longer in the place where he was. Our second son actually brought home to me the, the, the extraordinary nature of what Jesus is doing here. Many years ago now, our oldest boy was in a horrific car wreck, was in surgery for 14 hours and then back in the next day. And our second son was a young surgeon, uh, I think at that time in Great Ormond Street in London. And I remember him saying to me, he said, you know, Dad, I never really appreciated Jesus in this particular way until that day, because there I was in the hospital, there I was and taking part in operations, and every instinct in me was to throw everything aside and go to my brother. That is the instinct if you love somebody, isn't it? But to drop everything and go. Now, John has made very, very clear that Jesus really loved Lazarus. The sisters have said to him, Lazarus, whom you love, is sick. They wouldn't have gone all that distance if by sick they meant that he had a cough. What this means is he's really sick, and without saying it, Jesus, come and help us. Come and do something. Nobody else can do something. And uh, our son said to me, I never appreciated the sheer powerful restraint that Jesus exercised when every natural inclination in him must have been, humanly speaking, to drop everything and go. But I want you to notice something. He makes clear why he's not doing it, doesn't he? I mean, we need, to, we need to try and get inside the emotion of this situation. These two women he loves, uh, later on, you remember, they both say, Lord, if you had been here, he wouldn't have died. And it's almost as though the implication is not only their sorrow, but Jesus' reputation of love towards them is at stake. I mean, think of, what you, think of what your family would think of you if something disastrous happens in your family and you just get on with life as though nothing had happened. How long would it be before you recovered relationships? So this is an amazing thing. This is a tremendous tension in the story here that we need to try and appreciate. And Jesus explains to His disciples 
the reason for the delay. Uh, the second reason he gives is this, and, and this really increases the tension. He says, now, when I said Lazarus is asleep, I meant Lazarus is dead. And then he says this. I mean, this is almost unbearable. He says, I'm glad I didn't go for your sake, so that you may believe. That must have sounded like gobbledygook to them. A, that he's glad he didn't go. This is not a time for gladness. And B, he's, what's the connection between him not going and them believing? But you see, he'd already given them a hint that they hadn't seen, where he'd said, this is really for the glory of God. All this is taking place so that a context will be discovered manifested in which the sheer glory of God in the person of Jesus Christ will be unveiled. And that, of course, is exactly what happened. I think we, <coughs> we may miss the, the, the application of this just to ourselves. Of course, this is, this is a place in John's gospel, but it's also got an application to disciples in every age if we miss the tension, if we just think ho-hum and just read over the passage and feel nothing of the tension, then we miss the impressive nature of the lesson. And the impressive nature of the lesson is this, and this is the reason for the title, Cunctator, as you all remember from high school Latin, means the person who delays. And one of my favorite characters in antiquity, uh, it probably tells you as much about me as it tells you about him, a famous Roman general, also a senator, and actually he was dictator at one time called, he rejoiced in this name. Um, there's a member of parliament who might give his child this name, but I don't think most of us would. Quintus Fabius Maximus Cunctator. And he was given that nickname at the end, Cunctator, the delayer, because when he was fighting Hannibal in the Second Punic War, when he was fighting Hannibal, he developed this tactic of delaying so that Hannibal would exhaust his resources, and he was much criticized for it until people realized it was a very deliberate strategy because of what he had in mind. It was the strategy of delay that would lead to victory. And that's it here, isn't it? Incidentally, next week's title is Christus Victor. But this week it's Jesus Cunctator. And you see, the disciples had a bit of a problem with this, and the girls obviously had a problem with it. I mean, it, I don't think it's reading between the lines to to sense the kind of disappointment. They're still trusting in Jesus, Lord, but, but there's, a, there's an element of disappointment, isn't there? Lord, if you had been here, our brother would not have died. And so, what's the lesson? Well, the lesson is that Jesus has already spelled out to His somewhat blind disciples, there's a reason for all this. I'm glad I wasn't there so that you may believe. So that you may believe what? 
Well, you remember what John had said at the beginning of the gospel, how Jesus was the one in whom the glory of God was manifested, that He had a bigger plan in view than simply making a sick Lazarus well. The plan He had in view was raising a dead Lazarus to life, and that would become the catalyst for His own death, and therefore for His own resurrection, and therefore for our salvation. And so, this dramatic historical event also carries with it a lesson about what Jesus is like. Remember how Hebrews says He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. That does not mean He is the same on Saturday as today, Sunday, and will be forever. That means that He is the same as He was for what the author of Hebrews thinks about yesterday, the days of His flesh. He is the same today, and He'll be the same forever. And this is how, we, this is how we, we learn to trust in Jesus and understand who Jesus is and why we can trust Him and what we can learn from Him and how we relate to Him. That Jesus' kunk tatar in John chapter 11 is Jesus' kunk tatar also in some of our lives, 2018. And it's always been so. Our God has always been Deus Cunctator. He's always seen from our point of view to delay with Abraham and Sarah and the fulfillment of the promise of a son, with Joseph, who had that apparently God-given dream and then had to be dragged through all those years of misery, 14 years of, of misery, it seemed until eventually he would be able to look back and see that the God who was delaying in his life was actually preparing his life for his true ministry. And we see it in so many other ways in the Gospels, don't we? We see it in what to me is, I guess, my favorite illustration of this in, in Paul wanting to press on with the Gospel and doors being closed and Eventually, this leads, as we are told in the Acts of the Apostles, to the man of Macedonia and to the gospel coming to what we now regard as Europe and flourishing throughout Europe. That God does delay, but He doesn't delay without purpose. He may seem to us to be slow, but His timing is always perfect. He may seem to us uh, David Ellis used to use this marvelous expression, what do you do? I guess he still uses it. What do you do in your life when God's promises seem to be contradicted by God's providences? Where we were, David and I, in the Far East uh, at the back end of last year, I had dinner on two nights, one week, with two men, each of whom was wearing a Patek Philippe watch. Now, you've only seen the adverts for them. You never own one. You just have it in custody. They cost the earth. I mean, really, the earth. But I actually held them in my hand. And they're real watches. 
You know why all these people ended up in Geneva, the watchmakers? They were all wanting to sit under Calvin's ministry. And a lot of them brought their, their skills in watchmaking to Geneva. Calvin wouldn't have had the price tag so high. I'm sure he'd have had the price tag at the windows in Geneva. But you know, when you look into these watches, these real old watches, the reformers and, the, and their descendants used to love to use this as an illustration. What do you see? You see this amazing thing that the way in which the time is indicated is because there are these little wheels inside that are going in opposite directions. And our forefathers used to love to use that as an illustration of God's providence. His perfect timing is often related to the fact that there have been wheels moving in different directions in order to advance His purposes. And that's what eventually we find here in this chapter, isn't it, in the resurrection of Lazarus? That here, as it were, God is in Jesus Christ putting these dear friends of Jesus through what I often think of as the cul-de-sac principle, sticking them into a situation from which there seems no way forward, but all because He's moving things along in the traffic of His purposes in order that they may be in the right place at the right time to see the glory of the Lord in their lives. Sometimes in this world, we never see the fruition of that. That's true. By God's grace, amazingly, often we do, or at least we get glimpses of it. We see how the, the situations in which we've said, Lord, why are you not doing anything? He's been doing something all along. And what He has had in view has been much bigger than what it was we wanted. Some of you love doing crossword puzzles, and maybe occasionally you do this. You get to the end of the crossword puzzle, and you've got the last clue to fill in, and then you realize early on you chose a word that seemed to fit, and it fitted many things, but it didn't fit everything and so you're never able to finish the crossword puzzle. And what we do in our Christian lives is that we, we tend to assume that if we are friends of Jesus, then this is how things will work out. Or if this and this has happened in our lives, then we, we have this innate tendency to draw the trajectory into the future, and here we're learning that we can never do that, that what we are called to is day-to-day -day trust in the Lord Jesus, in the absolute conviction, first, that He loves us, and second, that His purposes are far greater than our anticipation of them. Because He is, if you think about it, what He's going to do in the resurrection of Lazarus, He's going to do in order that He may die on the cross. And what He's going to do by dying on the cross is to bear the judgment of God against our sins, and what He's going to do through His own resurrection, 
of which, in a sense, this is an anticipation and a promise, is to bring men and women and boys and girls, people in Dundee, as in St. Peter's, to come and trust in Him. At a human level, Jesus goes, touches Lazarus, Lazarus gets better, Nobody gets excited about Jesus' entry into Jerusalem. He'd done this so often before. Nobody gets so worked up about who He is. The crucifixion doesn't take place, and there is no salvation. That's how, that's how if I were drawing the way this story should end, that's what the end actually would be. And because I was drawing the story, I wouldn't be able to see that my ending to the story was completely wrong, because Jesus was planning something far bigger, something far better. And we need to learn, not least in difficult situations, to trust Him. And what this passage is saying to us at this point is, don't you see how what Jesus is doing is so contrary to everything that you would instinctively think Jesus would do? But don't you see that you can trust Him absolutely, because He loves you. And if you're His disciple, He wants to make you His friend and to show you more and more of what He does. Remember those wonderful words then to Simon Peter in John 13, 7. Peter, you've really no idea what I'm doing now, do you? But afterwards, afterwards when you see my glory, you will understand. He is the same today as He was in this yesterday. So, let's seek to trust Him. Our Heavenly Father, we thank You for the grace of our Lord Jesus and for His wonderful love for this family and for what we learn from their experience about the, the marvelous but also the mysterious love that He has for us. And although we love Him and we want to count ourselves as His friends, we also confess that we don't always know what our Master is doing. We pray that You would teach us more and more that where we cannot understand, we may trust the promises of Your Word and be sure that You will bring them to a glorious fulfillment. And we pray that we may learn with the disciples that we should look for the way in which You show Your glory in every event in our lives, in joy and in sorrow, in weakness and in strength, in church life and in working life, in home life and in leisure life. We pray that You would enable us to have a single eye fixed on the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ, and that we may learn more and more what it means to be His friend. And we pray this in His name. Amen. time together this evening by singing our final hymn, Yesterday, Today, Forever, Jesus.